0: I'm Nicholas Newman, and I'm going to be talking with you today about the third res- Resurrectional Gospel. Um, that is Mark, chapter 16, verses 9 through 20. Um, this is the third of the Resurrectional Gospels that are read during Orthros. Um, <clears throat> and it deals with uh, Christ's appearances after he was resurrected, as well as his um, final instructions to his disciples before his ascension. He appeared to the eleven themselves as they sat at table, and he upbraided them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to the whole creation. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak in new tongues, they will pick up serpents, and if they drink any deadly thing, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick, and they will recover. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven, and sat down at the right hand of, at the right hand of God, and they went forth and preached everywhere, while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by the signs that attended it. Amen. This is the final section of the Gospel of Mark. And it is a a passage that can be divided into a couple of sections. So the first part of this passage is a repeated uh, appearance. So Christ first appears to Mary Magdalene, and then he appears to two walking into the country, and finally he appears to the eleven who are sitting at table. And what's interesting to note here is that these appearances are met with unbelief, so first he appears to Mary Magdalene, and she goes and tells this to the disciples, but they do not believe her. And then um, he appears, interestingly, in another form, in en etra morfie. He appears to two of them as they were walking into the country. And then they went back and told the rest, but they again did not believe, and finally He appears to the eleven altogether, and this time, of course, since they see it themselves, they believe it, and he upbraids them for their unbelief and hardness of heart. This appearance of Christ to the eleven then begins the second section of this gospel in which Christ tells the disciples what they are to do next. He gives them directions to go out and to preach, um, as he does in the Great Commission. And he tells them what is going to be accompanying the signs of their preaching, so accompanying signs that is going to be with their preaching to show people that it is in fact the truth. And then finally, at that moment, he is taken from them, he is taken up to heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And sort of the final part of the the final moment of this passage is when the disciples then go out and preach. So it's... finishes with an action, that they go forth and they preach everywhere, and the Lord worked with them. Now, interestingly, once again, we begin with a discussion of when this is occurring. Jesus rose early on the first day of the week. Uh, so once again, we see a temporal moment in which Christ resurrects, early on the first day of the week. In Greek, it is the protisavatu, So it is the first day of the Sabbath again. Um, Just like in Mark, the Sabbath here is being used as a sort of collective for the whole week because the Sabbath was the principal moment of the week in uh, in the Jewish calendar. But since this is the first day of the week, protos can also be used in the sense of importance. So not only is this the first day of the week then in order, but the Puroti Savatu then becomes the first day of the week in importance. So the Sabbath is completed, and now another day of the week has gained its place as primary, and that is Sunday, the day of the Lord. And he appears appeared first to Mary Magdalene. Um, why first to Mary Magdalene? Well, the Venerable Bede discusses this a little bit. The Venerable Bede said, A woman first tasted death, but in Magdalene but in Magdalene, woman first saw the resurrection, that woman might not bear the perpetual guilt of transgression among men. So in a sense here, Mary Magdalene is, is juxtaposed to Eve. Through, right, Eve eats the, the fruit in, the, in paradise. And because of this, sin enters into the world. Um, and now Mary Magdalene is sort of the first witness of this uh, fallen nature being overthrown of death being overthrown uh, in Christ's rising from the dead. This uh, reminds me of a story that's told about the great hymnographer uh, Cassini, Saint Cassini, who was uh, one of uh, many young women who was presented to the emperor in order to be a potential bride. And the emperor says to her, through woman, sin entered into the world. And her response was, and through woman, Christ enters into the world, so we see this juxtaposition of Eve and then the Theotokos, and here Mary Magdalene, um, in in a couple of different places, and it's it's a beautiful way of looking at how the the fallen nature of humanity kind of has come full circle. Now we have the possibility of achieving theosis of. Of achieving salvation, where before through the through sin, death, and entered the world, and our nature fell. After this, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country. Now, who are these two? Augustine of Hippo discusses this a little bit when he says, "Now quote, we must now consider how the Lord appeared after the resurrection." In the gospel, he says, "In the gospel of Luke, relates the whole story respecting these two. One of whom was Cleopas." But Mark here touches but slightly upon it. The village of which Luke speaks may be without without absurdity, be supposed to be what is here called a farmhouse, and indeed in some Greek manuscripts it is called the country. And that's what uh, it says here as well. But by this name are understood not only villages, but also boroughs and country towns, because they are without the city, without meaning outside of. So Augustine of Hippo equates these two with... Um, the two disciples who are on their way to Emmaus, and that this is uh, a witness of this happening as well. And interestingly, of course, this is in another form, um, because those two disciples were unable to recognize Christ when he appears to them, but assumed that he was a stranger, and of course he walks with them, and um, then he eats with them and breaks bread with them and then disappears, and that's when they recognize him. Um, at some moment, these two that uh, Mark is talking about must recognize him because they went back and told the rest. So if he is appearing to them in another form, they never recognize him. They would not have, of course, gone back and told the others. But, um, so at some point, they must have recognized him, which, of course, uh, unites this with the account in Luke. Augustine of Hippo continues to say... But let no one suppose that Christ changed the form of his face by his resurrection. So, this in another form, in etra, in etra morphi in Greek, Augustine is saying that this isn't that he has kind of Picasso'd or something like that. He, that he has changed what he looks like. But he says... But the form is changed when, of mortal, it becomes immortal. So that this means that he gained a glorious countenance, not that he lost the substance of his countenance. So when it is talking about an eteromorphy, an another form, it's talking about the change of the the of human nature from fallen to not fallen. So Christ is showing forth what a human being is look it looks like when uh, when we are, when we will be resurrected at the end of time. So finally, Christ in in this passage, Christ visits the other eleven and upbraids them. Unfortunately for the disciples, they're constantly being upbraided for their unbelief and their hardness of heart and all the things that they do, because they had not believed. Um, if we look, however, at the Exapostilarium, at the um, the hymn of the of this resurrectional gospel, we see a very interesting way that the disciples are discussed. The hymn goes, Let no one doubt and disbelieve that Christ was resurrected, for unto Mary he appeared. So here we see it talking about the first part of this gospel. Afterwards, by those walking in the field, was he seen clearly. The second part of this gospel where he where he, um visits the two walking into the country and finally it says or and the next part it says to the eleven mystics reclining he appeared again and this is an interesting title that is being used in this hymn for the disciples in greek mistes depalin of thee so he appeared again to the mystics this is not a word that comes up in this gospel passage He appeared to the other 11, and so forth. Um, However, it is a title for the disciples that comes up periodically in these Ex Apostilaria. Uh, And the question is, then, why are they being called mystics here? Mystics is a very loaded term in antiquity. We we have our own kind of supposition of what it means to be a mystic. We have... um, often the word is sometimes is associated with things like new age religion or or things like that but here we're in a very different time period we're in a very different context and the word mystic is one that is very loaded in antiquity it is usually associated with the different mystery cults that were around in late antiquity particularly the mystics the mystae are associated with cults like that of Dionysus or um, with the mysteries at Eleusis, or with the, um, the cult of Isis and Serapis and so forth. So it has to do with religious initiation. These initiates into the cult would go through a variety of different rites and um, ceremonies in order to become part of these mystery cults. Uh, in the cult of Sibylle, for example, there was, uh, or at least supposedly, there was a rite of baptism in the blood of a bull. In the cult of Mithras, there were supposedly a number of different initiations depending on in w- depending on what rank you were going to be in this cult. Um, and in the Dionysus cult, there were several purification rituals and uh, various other initiation rituals you had to undergo. So. What miste actually means is one who is initiated into something. Now, what have the disciples been initiated into at this point? And how does this term kind of baptize the idea of initiation into an Orthodox or a Christian context? Well, later on in this passage, Christ ascends into heaven. And if we look at the icon of the Ascension, normally we see the Virgin Mary at the bottom, surrounded by the apostles. And then we have sort of an upper tier of the icon in which Christ is sitting, sometimes on a cloud, sometimes on a throne, things like that nature. But he is seated. He is in power. Um, In Byzantium, in, uh, in Rome, the seated position was the position of power. And those who had lesser power would stand. He usually has his hand out in blessing, and he is surrounded by the mandorla, this uh, whole body halo, you could say, that shows forth the divine light. Usually he's being carried upwards by angels, and often he is dressed, rather than in the normal red and blue, in a golden robe or a white robe or something of that nature. Where do we see the mandorla? and this white robe or golden robe in other icons we we'll, we see them for example in the icon of the resurrection or the icon of the transfiguration where Christ is manifesting his divinity where he is creating a moment of theophany where everyone who is witnessing this has an interaction as it were, or a revelation of god so the ascension like the transfiguration on mount Tabor or um, when he descends to Hades and resurrects the dead uh, or lifts the dead up to uh, from from Hades is a moment of showing forth of manifesting his divinity and this is what the disciples are being initiated into. They are seeing his divinity and the fullness of they're, they're seeing the um, his divinity and him being, raised up to heaven and where he's going to sit at the right hand of the Father. This is another moment where we see Christ showing forth his divinity. And this is what they're being initiated into. They are mysti, they are initiates into this mystery of Christ's dual nature of hum- of divine and human. Um, and this is then what they're going to go and preach. To the whole world in response to Christ's command to do so. Christ says to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to the whole creation. This is an interesting phrasing because it's a little bit different than what we see in the Gospel of Matthew where he says, go and make disciples of all nations. So we have cosmos as a word here, And we have chtesis. Cosmos means the world as it was translated in the English. Um, Cosmos is a very interesting word because it doesn't just mean world, but it also means order and it means beauty. So, for example, if you're studying cosmetology, you're studying sort of the, the way to make people beautiful, as it were so they're being commanded to go forth into the whole almost universe really is it could be the way that you could interpret it and proclaim the gospel keryxate uh, to evangelion a kirix is is similar to well, well we would say a herald almost you go and proclaim it not when we when we think preach we think we have kind of a different understanding of what that might look like than when we say herald, right? Um, herald the good news, the Evangelion, pass to the entire creation. So you could think of it almost as not just, not just humanity is affected by the incarnation of Christ, because not just humanity was affected by the fall, all of creation is affected and all of creation is, in a sense, put right here. So this preaching is to the whole of creation. Uh, there's, I think, an interesting parallel here if you look at the icon of the baptism of Christ. Christ descends into the water of Jordan where he's baptized by John. And then, of course, the there's the manifestation of the Trinity when the, the Father speaks and the, the Holy Spirit descends. But why is Christ getting baptized? Christ is sinless, and John's baptism is a baptism for forgiveness of sin. So he doesn't necessarily need John's baptism, but he is sanctifying baptism and turning it into a means of salvation. Right below, it says, he who believes and is baptized will be saved. But he is also sanctifying the waters. Uh, When we... uh, when we have the prayers of uh, making holy water or during the prayers for baptism, it says he descends into the, the river Jordan crushing the heads of dragons that lurk their dragons, right? The demons that are lurking in this water are destroyed by Christ. The fallen nature of humanity and of creation is destroyed by Christ. And this then, Christ's sanctification of this water by his descent into it doesn't just stay in jordan jordan is a river it flows and it flows into a lake and it flows into the ocean and then it is uh, taken up into the sky as as it um and then it, it becomes rain and it falls down on the earth and then the goes through the entire water cycle again and again and again sanctifying all of the water in the world and this is beautifully seen in the icon of the baptism of Christ, because the River Jordan doesn't end at the end of the at the bottom of the icon. The river Jordan flows out from the icon into the whole world. So this in the same way the disciples are meant to go forth into the whole world and to preach to all creation that Christ is. Is God and Christ has overcome death, he has overcome for the fallen nature of humanity and of creation and has set things right. And these signs will accompany those who believe. When the disciples go out to preach they're going to their preaching is going to be accompanied by signs that they are preaching the truth. And what are these signs? So they will, cast out demons, they will speak in new tongues, they will pick up serpents, and if they drink any deadly thing it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. So they are going to be casting out demons. They are going to be able to communicate. They will pick up serpents and they will drink deadly things and it won't hurt them and they will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. Um, how should we interpret this? Is, are these, is this literal? Are we literally supposed to, as we preach Christ, are we supposed to go out and find ourselves some snakes? Well, Gregory the Dialogist uh, discusses this passage and he has a more allegorical interpretation. Uh, he says, For when her, pri- her priests, talking about the church, by the grace of exorcism lay their hands on believers and forbid the evil spirits to dwell in their mi- minds, what do they do but cast out devils? And the faithful, who have left earthly words and whose tongues sound forth the holy mysteries, speak a new language. They who by their good warnings take away evil from the hearts of others, take up serpents. And when they are hearing words of pestilent persuasion without being at all drawn aside to evil doings, they drink a deadly thing, but it will never hurt them. Whenever they see their neighbors growing weak in good works and by their good example strengthen their life, they lay their hands on the sick that they may recover. And all these miracles are greater in proportion as they are spiritual, but by them souls and not bodies are raised. So he has a a spiritual interpretation of this, that... The taking up of snakes isn't a physical thing, but it is a spiritual thing that when they take away the evil from the hearts of others by their good warnings, by their their love, they are taking up serpents. When they hear words of pestilent persuasion without being at all drawn aside to do evil, they drink a deadly thing. So we have a spiritual understanding. However,